Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Uh, it is our practice here at the Dallas Reformed Presbyterian Church once a month to take a sermon to consider a psalm in God's songbook. Uh, this month we're at Psalm 105. We go sequentially through the entire psalm book. And the reason for this is as we sing praises to God out of his own word, we are commanded to sing with the understanding in, uh, in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 14.15. And so we come to understand what we sing. Now this is a very long psalm, one of the longest psalms in the Bible, and so we cannot go verse by verse, but I hope to give you the sense of it uh, through the preaching of the word. So Psalm 105, trusting you are there in your copy of God's holy word, let us now Hear from the very word of God. These are the words of God, holy and inspired. Let us hear them as such. O give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham his servant, ye children of Jacob his chosen, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob so sojourned in the land of Ham and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees, and break the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came, and caterpillars, and that without number, and did eat up all the herbs in their land, and devoured the fruit of their ground. 
He smote also the first, all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell over upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come now to a a wonderful psalm, and uh, we pray, Father, for the preaching of it. We know there are many constraints upon the preaching of the word now, time, and uh, the attention of the congregation, as well as the, the limitations of the minister in his flesh. And so we pray, Father, that it would be your Holy Spirit who would make this psalm come alive to us now by the preaching of the word, that you would bless the minister with the Spirit of God, and you would bless the congregation as well with ears to hear the word of God by that same Spirit. Oh, Father, we, we pray that in this time your name would be gloried in, that the name of Jesus Christ would be a strong tower to us as we consider the word of God. May Christ be magnified in the preaching of the word. And to that end, Father, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two questions. All men, women, and children must have an answer to. The first is, what can I depend upon? And the second is, how do I know I can depend upon it? What can I depend upon? And how do I know I can depend upon it? Many Christians might get the answer to the first part right. They might say, I can depend on God in Jesus Christ. But the second question will flummox many. And today many might even say, well, I just have a kind of blind faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I I just trust, I suppose, that I can depend on him. But what is the objective basis of your hope in Jesus Christ, friends? And the answer that the Bible gives, and this psalm is going to draw out, is the covenant that he has made. That he has made an objective covenant. He has sworn himself to uphold great and precious promises to those who believe in Christ. And the covenant, his pledge to us, is set forth in the book of the covenant, the Holy Bible. His unending commitment to us in Christ is really spelled out in black and white upon its pages. You can say, believer, that he swore a covenant of grace to me, and so I can find hope in his promises. You know, to be in covenant with God through Christ is a matter of the greatest praise, beloved, which is the aim of our psalm, that being in covenant with God is praiseworthy. It gives you all of his attention. It gives you all of his protection. 
And He takes care of all the things that would keep you from having eternal communion with Him. He is resolving all things to work for good for those of you who love God in Christ. That is His promise, objectively, in a covenant that He has sworn to keep. And so our theme is this morning that we are to rejoice that Jehovah will observe and remember His covenant forever. We consider it under three heads. First is to consider God's covenant promise. Second is to see God's demonstrated faithfulness. And then third is to understand our necessary response to such a covenant. First, God's covenant promise. And a bit of context might help us out here as we consider this psalm. This psalm and the the following psalm, Psalm 106, are a pair in your Bible. They both deal with God's gracious covenant of grace for his people. These are the two great covenant psalms. And in our psalm, Psalm 105, we sing praise that none of Christ's enemies will ever stop his covenant promise. None will ever thwart the Lord from keeping his promise to his people. Whether it is Canaanites, whether it is Pharaoh, whether it is Rome, or these United States, no enemy can stop God from saving us. No enemy can stop Christ from building his church, as he has promised. And then in Psalm 106, the following psalm, you find not only can the enemies out there not stop the promise, but the enemies in here cannot stop the promise either. Our unfaithfulness as a people cannot stop God from being faithful to his people. Even after he chastens his people for sin, he keeps his covenant and gives us mercy. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Neither the enemies out there nor the enemies in the camp, friends, can stop God from being faithful because it is God who has sworn to save us and not we ourselves. And so our psalms together testify to that fact. Well, as far as Psalm 105 here today, as far as its authorship is concerned, humanly speaking, we know the Holy Ghost is the author of each of these, the human author would be King David. The first 15 verses appear in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. David delivered our psalm to thank the Lord. Do you remember the occasion, boys and girls? You might, if I remind you. The Ark of the Covenant was being carried into the tabernacle. And the ark, you remember, was a visible representation, wasn't it, of God's presence, yes, but also of the covenant that God has made with his people. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant in First Chronicles 16.6. And when the ark was returned then, right, David delivers a psalm. What David, what the Holy Spirit is teaching his people is you have to meditate as to why why the ark is being returned. It's because God never fails to keep his covenant. Even when the people are unfaithful, even when the enemies, when the Philistines arise, no matter what the opposition, whether it is Pharaoh or the Philistines, the Lord's covenant counsel will stand. He will save his people. And they were to praise God for it because that is the foundation of their hope. And they must see, as we must see, that it is God's covenant of grace that forms an objective basis for our hope. 
that he has promised to save us. We are called to bless God for his covenant. And you are called to cling to it in every difficulty. To remember that God has promised to be God to us. God has sworn an oath on himself because he could swear on no one greater. That he will save us in Christ. That all by himself, unilaterally, he will always save his people. Always. That all by himself, unilaterally, he will always give us grace to forgive every sin in Christ if we are in him. That the great God of heaven stands by always, ever ready to defend his people, ever ready to judge their enemies. And we can depend upon him to remember his covenant. That we can pray to him to keep his covenant because he has promised to do so. That we would have faith that he will. And so verses 7 through 10 are the heart of the psalm. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Now we have to ask, what is the essence of the covenant that God makes? I'm uh, aware to those unfamiliar to it, and maybe you're new to the Reformed faith. Um, Covenant theology can sound daunting to you. But really, the essence of the covenant is simple, because we do have a simple faith. It's not a simplistic faith, beloved, but it is simple in many ways. The essence of the covenant of grace is very simple. Jehovah promises to be our God and that we would be his people. That's the essence of the covenant. And out of the essence of the covenant, then all the blessings flow to us. This relationship, this is the most necessary relationship in all of your life, friends. That Jehovah would be your God and you would be one of his people. And that relationship is is established in a covenant and it is secured by it as well. In Deuteronomy 29, 12 through 15, at Horeb, Moses said to the people, that thou shouldst enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, And listen to this, people of God, who have come here today and also with him that is not here with us this day. This covenant establishes that Jehovah will have a people, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And this is all of undeserved grace, friends, because these people and and we ourselves are sinners. Like the people of God of old, we deserve God's wrath. And for God to give us a covenant of grace like this to say, I will take you, I will cherish you, I will keep you, and you will be my people forever. This is grace, all of it, unmerited grace. And because we are unfamiliar with the Old Testament sometimes, you need to hear of the continuity in Deuteronomy 29. Go back to it maybe today. But I hope you heard of the continuity of the covenant of grace. It reaches both backwards and forwards there from Horeb. He said backwards, reaching to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were long dead, but also forward. That is 
to people not here with us this day. Like you, believer. Same covenant is one that you have entered into by faith. All the elect of God are in covenant with God. All who will believe on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 promises, And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When you read here, right? When you read here of an oath that is made unto Isaac, a covenant made with Abraham, and a law unto Jacob, what you are singing of in this psalm is that their God is your God as well. And you are his people in Christ who is Abraham's seed. And it's with that understanding then, in the seventh verse, we will sing that he is the Lord our God. This phrase is all throughout the Bible, and it is perhaps one of the most precious phrases of all. How quickly do you read over that, friends, when you come in the Bible and you, you see Lord here all in caps, right, boys and girls, that is Jehovah. I am that I am, the great God of heaven, the one who is a consuming fire we heard of last Lord's Day. He says that he is the Lord, our God. When you read that, you're not meant to say, well, I have chosen Jehovah to be my God. I've sort of surveyed all the gods of the earth and I've said, well, Jehovah will be mine in Christ. But instead, the glory of it is the reverse, that Jehovah has taken me to be Christ, that the great I am has bound himself to me by way of covenant, that he has taken me and that it is not my faithfulness even to the Lord that keeps me in covenant, but because he has taken me for himself and has promised to be a God to me, then I can depend on him. And he has sworn to do it in a covenant. You know, when when the, the book of the covenant, that is the Bible, declares, if God is for us, who can be against us? You have to think this is the covenant promise, isn't it? Romans 8.31. That is the pledge of God. This is not wishful thinking. God has bound himself by way of covenant to say that God is for you in Christ. And so you say, no one can be against us because God has promised it. Not Pharaoh, not socialist, not Marxist, whatever it is today you are afraid of. If God is for us, who can be against us? I can say, because of the covenant promise, I am assured that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. Because God has promised it. And it's not wishful thinking. Romans 8.35, in the covenant, promises it. Even when I hear that wonderful theme, right, of the Song of Songs, as we sing it, uh, as we not sing it, as we hear it in communion time, what is that wonderful promise? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I remember the covenant. It's a marriage covenant, isn't it, in Ephesians 5, where Christ is our bridegroom, and he covenants with his bride, the church, that way. He has promised that. It's objective. Just as you can point to married persons, your your marriage license or certificate, or you can point to your wedding ring if you have one, and say, I am in covenant with my beloveds. My baptism, as we heard last Lord's Day, testifies to this truth. And so you understand then, you have to understand then the glory of the covenant. If the principle is and the promise is in the covenant, he will be our God and we will be his people. Whatever stands in the way of communion with God, 
he will take care of. Whatever stands in way of you being God's and you being his, he will deal with. Because that's his promise in the covenant. Under the covenant terms he has laid out, he must remedy it. He's promised to. That's the heavenly matter of the covenant of grace, friends. Now think on history. When we fell into sin, when Adam broke the first covenant, what did Jehovah promise us straight away? A redeemer to reclaim us in Christ, giving us a precious covenant of grace, saying to the devil in Genesis 3.15, a promise, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, speaking of Jesus, to come shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. You think of this. Is Satan standing in the way of us being God's people? Yes. So what will God do under the covenant? He will deal with Satan. Is sin standing in the way of us being God's people? In other words, is the wrath of God his obligation for our sin? Yes. So because we must be his people in the covenant of grace, that's why he takes care of our sin problem and gives us the Redeemer who is Jesus Christ. God the Son himself, right? When he could swear, he could swear no one greater. So he swears on himself to come down in the flesh to save his people from their sins. Why? Because there is a covenant that demands it and he has sworn it willingly. And in the book of the covenant, then we read, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 53.10. Why? Because he has made a covenant to be our, our God and we would be his people. And so he deals with sin himself by being put to death for our sin. The covenant promise, you find it even in the new covenant prophecy, right? In Jeremiah 31.33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. But it's found all throughout the Bible. If you would just read you would find that refrain all throughout your Bible. And if you understood that promise, you would understand all of God's mighty redemptive works. And because he has promised to be a God to us, and as we are sinners, we understand we cannot go to God on our own. God is holy and we are not. The covenant requires a mediator. And that mediator is one who is both God and man in order that man might draw near to God and be reconciled to God. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so the covenant provides for us what we need to have communion with God, who is a mediator, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see how everything flows out of the covenant promise? Even Christ himself comes out of that promise to be God to us. It is Jesus, the Bible says, who is the covenant, really, the sum and substance of it. He is its mediator. He is its messenger. He is its surety. Isaiah 42, 6. It's always wonderful to remember this. Christ is called the covenant himself. The Father tells the Son, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Do you remember how Jesus Christ, in his very first sermon at the synagogue, he preached out of Isaiah 42 partly, and he said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears, because he is the sum and substance of the covenant of grace. You even think about this, right? Because we need a mediator, that God and man might be one, right? We might be his people, and he would be our God. Christ's own person has two natures, divine and human. What does 
the Son of God's hypostatic union preach to you, friend. His own person preaches the covenant of grace, doesn't it? That there will be peace between God and man in this covenant, and it is found in his own person. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so like Thomas, he tells you, look upon my pierced hands by faith. Look upon my opened side by faith, beloved. Surely my covenant is sure and secure as I have fulfilled it. And so in view of this covenant of grace, now remember its land promise to Abraham in verse 11, saying unto thee, will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? Sometimes we miss the primary reason for the land promise, friends. It's not just to gift a piece of dirt in the Middle East. Have you ever thought on what its primary function was? It was that God might dwell with his people. That God might dwell with his people there. And that's the heart of the covenant, isn't it? And that was David's greatest joy, wasn't it, when the ark came to rest? God has come to dwell with us in the land he has promised. God has come to be with us. The Bible, though, shows us that Canaan was just a temporary place. It was just typological of what? Heaven, isn't it? What is heaven, believer? And this is where so many go so wrong in their conception of heaven. They think of heaven as just a place with no misery. Maybe I have everything I could ever want. That's a very worldly kind of thing if you don't think of Christ in that, as Christ is the thing that we want. But heaven is a place with God. That is heaven. God doesn't need heaven. You know, think about this, right? It's a created place. God doesn't need heaven, but you do. You need heaven. You need heaven so that you have a place where he might be with you and you might be with him forever, believer. Where nothing can truly separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not even our sin, because there will be no sin in heaven. Praise God for that. Do you remember what Jesus said before he ascended into heaven? I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. But what was the purpose? That where I am, there ye may be also. John 14, 3. Do you not hear the covenant even in that? That I will be God to them, and they will be my people, and I will go and create a place where this may happen. You know, the aim of your salvation, believer, the aim of the covenant of grace is communion with God. That is ultimately its aim. Jesus was not given to you, friends, to be a get-out-of-jail-free card, a get-out-of-hell-free card. No, salvation is his means for you to have God and to have him forever. Think on the land promised to Abraham. You think of this, right? Did Abraham ever live to see that promise come to pass? He did not. His descendants did. God was true. But he did not. But what did God tell Abraham ultimately in Genesis 15:1? Fear not, Abraham, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. It is me, Jehovah, I am yours, and that is your great reward, not a piece of dirt in the Middle East. So what is your reward, believer? If God asked right now, straight away, and maybe is in the preaching of the word, what is your reward? Would you say, you are my reward, Lord. You are my hope. You are my reward. You are what I long for. You are what I want. You see, everything else is carnality. Everything else is idolatry. To desire Canaan over God would be idolatry. To desire heaven 
over God is idolatry. To not want to be in hell over wanting God is idolatry of self. The covenant of grace is made that you might have God. Canaan, heaven, nothing compares to God. They are just habitats, so to speak, by which you can have God. And so, the covenant of grace, God for us, is the heart of the psalm. He has sworn to keep it. He is bound to keep it. And he is no liar. And the bulk of the psalm demonstrates his faithfulness to keep it. Our second heading, God's demonstrated faithfulness. Verses 9 through 43 demonstrate that God, the God of the covenant, is faithful. That in every difficulty impossible for his people to overcome, God has kept his covenant in ways that are unimaginable to his people even. And that gives us assurance that God's covenant will never fail. Why? Because he cannot change Malachi 3.6 because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 All the history that you find, you know, this is a very big Bible and many of God's people are unacquainted with most of it. But this is the book of the covenant. And it demonstrates over and over and over again that God is faithful to his promise. And if you would know it, friends, you would say that come what may, Jesus will ever be faithful. Come what may, there is no room for pessimism in the kingdom of God. All the history of this Bible, all of church history, and the history of the saints individually preaches one mighty sermon. God will always be faithful. So our faith and our praise is found here as we review the history in the psalm. And it contains four historic periods. In each of these, the promise of God seemed impossible. And that's what you're going to see as you remember these things. It seemed impossible to come to pass. But in all of them, God worked mighty wonders, impossible for men, that his covenant would stand. There is far too much, obviously, to go verse by verse today. So I want to give a sense of some of the challenges we have faced in the text and how God has advanced his kingdom through them all. And that is the key observation I want you to take away with every difficulty here. Listen to this, that the difficulties of our people served God's promise and were never against it. You're going to find that in every difficulty, the promise advances. It doesn't retreat. And so you're going to find that our sovereign God decrees all of these four time periods and every other period that has come so that the promise might come to pass. You know, our initial, our initial um, thought in every difficulty we, we face is this. Will God's promise ever come to pass? Right? That's what we say. Will God save me? Will God take me through this trial and this temptation that seems so severe? But what God wants you to know as you review covenant history is this, that even in this difficulty, I am advancing the promise to you. And you just don't know yet how I am doing it. And as you consider this history, one full of names like Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, do not think this history has nothing to do with you, believer. You're no detached spectator to these events, not if you are in Christ. The Bible says in Galatians 3.7, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. This is your history, friends. You are part of the same covenant with Abraham called the father of faith. This text is your covenant history, child of God. These are your forefathers in the faith. They are not some other people. Their difficulties are your difficulties. 
Christ's victories for them are your victories as, as well. In verse 6, it is said that you are the seed of Abraham, right? You sing this, O ye seed of Abraham, his servant. Well, you just heard in Galatians 3.7, you are his in Christ who is his seed. And so you sing with these people. So the text has four time periods. First, the time of the patriarchs. Second, the time in Egypt. Third, the exodus from Egypt. Fourth, our wilderness journey to the promised land. And in the first period, the patriarchs, you find that in verses 9 through 15. You hear in verse 11, right? He had promised to give them Canaan. You find the difficulty straight away in verse 12. They were few in numbers and strangers. At this time, you remember Jacob's family was very small. They were without friends. They were in a land full of powerful peoples. And the language here of few in numbers is deliberate. It's meant to have you recall that very solemn episode where Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was violated. And his son's retaliation to kill Hamor and Shechem. And you remember Jacob trembled. He was afraid. He thought his house was done for. Genesis 34.30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Ye have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, that I, and I being few in number, there it is, I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. Why did Jacob fear his house was destroyed? Why did he tremble and quake? He forgot the covenant promise. The covenant promise was that Jacob's seed would be a mighty nation. His house would never be destroyed. And was God not faithful to Jacob and the promise? Yes. You read that he put the terror of God into the Canaanites and they never once pursued Jacob. And as he as they wandered from nation to nation as strangers, our text reminds us, he always protected them. In verses 14 and 15, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. You remember that, boys and girls, in Genesis 20, verse 7, when Jehovah reproved King Abimelech when Abraham lied and said, Sarah is my sister. And you remember that uh, the Lord told Abimelech, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. God himself intervenes and rebukes a king. Why? Because God's promise in the covenant that Abraham would have a holy seed, and out of Abraham would come our Lord Jesus Christ. If Abraham had just remembered the covenant, he would not have lied, would he? He would not have been afraid. He would have known God was for him and would keep his covenant promise. I think that's a lesson for you who, who believe on the Lord. There's no room, no room to take matters into your own hand. Should we sin, right? Should we ever sin that good would result? By no means, God forbid. The next period is found in verses 17 through 25, when Jacob's family went into Egypt. You remember how all of that began. What a grievous thing it was. Joseph sold into bondage by his brothers. They went into Egypt, how? Through Jacob's son's misery. And the man fell, fell into one misery after another misery. First, he's a slave. Then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into jail. And you remember Joseph, you sing of him in verse 18, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. 
The literal, literal Hebrew here has long captivated the, the Christian church. When it says he was laid in iron, it says literally in the Hebrew, if you go word by word in the Hebrew, iron entered his soul. Not just his physical captivity, but you remember the man's torments in his soul. His bondage was not a physical trial. His soul was greatly tried year after year after year as by iron. One misery to the next. His family gone. His freedom gone. His reputation gone. Even those who said they would remember him in prison, gone. Verse 19 says, Until the time that his word came, that is the promise came, the word of the Lord tried him. You see, the covenant tries us at times, friends. Joseph was sorely tried. Would he trust God's word or not? Would he have faith in God's promise or not? Well, boys and girls, I know he's one of your favorite uh, men in the Bible, and you know that he was faithful. He remained faithful. His faith was proved as in fire and emerged more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1.7. Friends, his fetters and the iron in his soul, they were not against the promise of God but they were fulfilling the promises of God. And that's a paradigm shift we must make in our very, very small thought of God. We need to know these things, friends, because the journey to heaven is full of trials, just as the journey to Canaan. But each trial for the child of God is working for good. Every enemy raised by the Lord is working to fulfill the promises of God because God will fulfill his covenant promise. You remember in verse 17, it reminds us that the Lord sent Joseph to Egypt. Why? He sent him before as a slave. Why? Because of a great worldwide famine. He sends Joseph so that the whole world would be saved by this man. God elevates Joseph out of prison. And you remember Pharaoh put Joseph on his right hand. What was the explanation given by Joseph much later on at the end of Genesis, in Genesis fifty twenty, But as for you, speaking to his brother, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, why? To save many people alive. You see, what he couldn't perceive in the dungeon, necessarily, is that God was saving the world through this man's misery. And so, beloved... The world's famines, the world's recessions, all the turmoil, inflation, whatever you see now, droughts, whatever else, whatever we face that vexes us, all of it has come from God's hand and his covenant will not fail. Instead, such difficulties are God advancing the promises of the covenant. And you have to understand that, friends. Will the word of the Lord try you as it did Joseph? Is the word of God trying you now? Because it requires faith to believe such things. You must remember the covenant and know for sure these things will come to pass. And as you do so, you need to remember the greater Joseph. He was in fetters for you, believer. And what was the iron that entered his soul? It was the wrath of God Almighty. That was what afflicted our soul when Jesus was tried and tested as the face of God turned against him on the cross. Why? He could take Joseph's words and say to save many people and fulfill the covenant that God would be their God. 
Well, by Joseph, God brought Jacob and his family into Egypt. And over time, those who were once called few in number in verse 24, God said, increased, he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. You remember how the Egyptians began to hate the Israelites? But that, in verse 25, reveals was God's sovereign work. He turned their heart, the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. Why is that? You know, you think, what an awful, terrible thing, right? Hated by the people of this world. But what was God working in that? His covenant promised them Canaan, not Egypt. His covenant had nothing to do with Egypt. They had to leave Egypt. Egypt was in many ways God's incubator for them to grow them to the right size to conquer Canaan. And when they were the right size, and you also hear that the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. That's another thing as well. When they were the right size, God incited hatred in the Egyptians at, at, at just the right moment. When it was needed, hatred comes in with the Egyptians. Because if God would not do it, they would be content to stay there and never be inheritors of the promise, and not go to the land where God said he would dwell with them. Will you have faith in this principle today, beloved? For the church to multiply and spread the knowledge of the gospel throughout the earth, that all the elect may be gathered, the Lord often causes animosity towards us, his people. What is the saying? That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is often the case that we have to be persecuted so that we would not grow so comfortable with this present world. You know, Christians are often way too complacent, too happy with the world and so in love with it and the worldliness that we find here. It is no wonder in our time then, beloved, that the Lord has raised enemies to cause us not to desire earthly Egypt, but heavenly Jerusalem, that we would fulfill the Great Commission And the covenant promise that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth. You get too comfortable here in in Fairview, in McKinney, or wherever else, and you start to say, this is my home. Instead of saying, I'm a stranger and a pilgrim here. God will raise up enemies to make it very clear to you, this is not your home. You start to think that the the number one thing you are is is uh, is someone who who is a, a patriot. And there's a good patriotism, right? I'm not discounting that. But if my entire hopes are set in this nation, God will turn the nation against the church. Third is the time of the Exodus. Then we lead to that as Egypt arose against his people, and he said he raised up two men to save them, Moses and Aaron, in verse 26. Because of his covenant promise, friends, you remember how in Exodus, you remember that God heard his people. He remembered the covenant. He raises up Moses. He raises up deliverance for us. The psalm then recalls the ten plagues. We won't go through them. I trust you understand them. And what was the purpose of the plague? To break Egypt's hold on his people. God told Pharaoh what? Let my people go that they may serve me. That is the covenant, isn't it? That they would be my people, and I would be their God. You see, the covenant is all throughout. And what was the final plague, children, that came with the slaying of the firstborn? Verse 36. What do you remember of that plague? Some were saved by taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. As you sing 
this psalm, you recall the greater exodus, the exodus from your sin in Jesus. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And when they left, he plundered the Egyptians to give them gifts, in verse 37. In like manner, when Jesus conquered Satan, he ascends to heaven and gives gifts to his church, in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. In there you find church officers, so that we would not be tossed to and fro, but instead come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, that we would possess every spiritual blessing necessary to make it to heaven. His covenant pledges to us that we will make it to heaven, and gifts are given to ensure it. That takes us to the fourth and final period, the wilderness journey out of Egypt to Canaan. He led them himself, going with the cloud and the pillar in verse 39. The cloud and the fire, you remember, was the presence of God. He was there. He, he was there to make sure they would make it. He promised them in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. That's a promise from God, ratified in the covenant. And so you, on your journey to heaven, are told, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Those are his terms, by way of covenant. And is that not reiterated to you in the Bible, in the New Testament. In Jesus, in Hebrews 13, 5, we remember the same promise is given, that he will be with us and he will not forsake us. And if Jesus does not go with us to heaven, we would never make it, friends. So we thank God that the covenant promises he would, so we can be of good courage. Are you of good courage today? The covenant demands it. And in verse 40, in the wilderness, without food, you think of this great nation that has come out of slavery. What did Jehovah do? He provided quail and manna called bread from heaven. Why? To ensure that they would make it there. You remember Jesus in that as well. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. That's the manna. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, 51. If you are spiritually empty, friend, if your soul is hungering, in faith you need to ask Jesus, and he will provide sustenance to get to the promised land of heaven. Feed on his ordinances. He showers them out, even now in the preaching of the word, the word and sacrament. They are as manna from heaven for us, and how we need it to get there. How the preaching of the word and the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, that says, this is my body, which is broken for you, the terms of the covenant. You see, the blood that is shed, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, or new covenant in my blood. It testifies that he is there to feed us. And so in your prayers, friends, you can always plead the covenant as you face trials. You can say, God, you have pledged by way of covenant to take me to heaven Give me sustenance. Take me there, and he will. In verse 41, in the dry places of the wilderness, he opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. His people thirsted, and he gave them water. Even out of a rock, he could give them water. What do you read of in 1 Corinthians 10.4? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was always there, friends. Just as he's here 
right now. He can cause you to cease thirsting through not a rock right now, but just words from a Bible, from preaching of the word and by faith. He says that those who come to him out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And he will give you everything that you need to make it to heaven. He said in John 7.37, he cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Are you spiritually parched? Are you drinking out of the Christ who is the rock? Come unto Jesus and drink deeply, richly, and he will fill you. He promised to do so. And so they made it to Canaan because he remembered his covenant. Verses 42 to 44. For he remembered his holy promise. That's our theme tonight in the other service. And Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people. You see how gracious God is. He gave them a land they never labored for. He gave them grace for grace. And when you get to heaven, believer, you are going to inherit a land you never labored for, that you never earned. None of you can go before God and say, yes, my labor earned this land for me. If so, you would have something to boast of, and it would not be of grace. But it is all of grace, friends. It was purchased by the labors of Jesus and given to you out of grace. Where is your deed and claim to heaven, beloved? Do you know? It is in the covenant of grace and its precious promises. Who is our deed and claim to it? It is Jesus Christ himself. When you come before God on the day you die, and he asks, by what right do you have to come into my glory, my holy habitation, my heaven? What do you say? Just Jesus. Just Jesus. Precious Jesus is my deed and claim to heaven itself. Because that is the terms you have laid out, O God, in the covenant of grace. And I have believed that. You promised in the covenant, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here I stand in the glory of God. My hope has always been that I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2, And the Lord will smile and surely say, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But only if you come to God through this covenant of grace, through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, your sins remain on you and the wrath of God abides upon you through the old covenant of works, which we can cover another day. But all you need to know now is that if you are not under the covenant of grace in Christ, you are condemned. But it is all of grace. All you have to do is put your faith in the Lord, believe on him, and he saves you to the uttermost. And so in verse 5, and we'll cover the remainder really, I'd hope, a little more quickly. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done. That's your calling to remember all the great things the Lord hath done for you. And if you would remember these things and you would see them rooted in the covenant, you would have the faith of Philippians 1.6 on your way to heaven, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
What is this psalm proclaiming? That he who has begun a good work among his people will bring it to completion, friends. That is a sure thing. That is the basis of our assurance, is that God has promised these things and sworn on his own self to do it. So pray the promises of the covenant to him. When the enemies of God arise, say, Lord, arise. Remember your covenant. Use these enemies to advance your church. Let my own eyes see such a great wonder. And never forget, the heart of the covenant is communion with God, God to us. So is your sin marring your communion with God, with Christ? Plead the covenant. Lord, my sin is keeping me from being close to you. Grant me greater faith. Give me a hearty repentance and a new obedience that I may walk close with God. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. Psalm 119.49-50 And so with all this grace, we must respond. And this is our final heading, our necessary response. So we return to our two questions. What can I depend on? And how do I know I can depend on it? You have a sure answer, friends. You can depend on Christ. And the answer as to why is he has sworn a covenant of grace. Now think of all else in your life. All else that men depend on. Who or what could compare to what God has promised in the Bible? Are you going to stand and say, I depend on my work, I depend on my marriage even, I depend on this person, or I depend on this philosophy? You can't. Absolutely not. But you can depend on Jehovah and his promises. And so what ought to be your uh, your response to that? This text says, praise and obedience. Praise and obedience. The psalm is bookended with calls to praise and obedience. And how hard our heart would be if we would not. To have such precious promises and not praise God or obey. All he asks for, for such grace, is our hearty praise and cheerful obedience to the commands. Neither our praise nor our obedience procure the covenant blessings. Christ did that. But our praise and our obedience comes as fruits of being in Christ and having his grace. So verse 1 opens with, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord and call upon his name. Because of this covenant, you are to offer the sacrifice of praise. You are to call on the name of the Lord in worship. You are to praise him and adore him. Because you have exceeding great and precious promises. Is there a desire for this in your heart, friend? Beloved, do you have any any desire to praise God? You say you are a believer. You say you're going to heaven. You say that Christ has done it all. Is there thanks in your heart? It's hard to understand how you can survey God's faithfulness and not praise him and be thankful. That is the great sin, isn't it, in Romans one twenty one? For when they knew God, they were neither grateful nor they, they were not thankful. They did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful. And we're not just to thank him. Verse 1 says, make known his deeds among the people. If we know the great grace of God, we are to be evangelistic, to bring others into the covenant, to preach the gospel. But all of us have a duty in this, to tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee in Mark 5.19. 
You see the compassion of the Lord in the covenant of grace. You are called to tell all peoples. Yes, only few will be preachers, true, but all are to tell the nations what great things the Lord hath done for you. We say to others, right, it's like Psalm 126, where you essentially say, uh, I will tell this one and that one. Let us go to heaven together. Then in verse 2, sing unto him, sing psalms unto him. You are to sing psalms, not just in public worship. That's important. We've covered that in other t- uh, texts. But daily, daily you have received covenant mercies. And maybe you don't think on that. Every day, every moment, even now, tomorrow as well, if the Lord preserves you, you will receive covenant mercies. Daily, he gives you what you need for your next step in the journey to heaven. That is covenant mercy day by day. So sing praise daily. Have you ever thought about this? Each day you sin, believer. God has not consumed you. You have received covenant mercies. And the promise of the covenant of grace. Each day that he has worked repentance in you. Each day you have received covenant mercy. At the end of each day, you need to meditate, friends. Today, all things, because of the covenant, have worked for my good. When is the last time you have done that? Today, all things have worked for my good. My iron might have entered my soul as it entered Joseph's. But today, all things have worked for my good and the promise of God. And so you must sing daily, whether in affliction or you have great uh, blessings each day. In verse 2, you are told to talk ye of all his wondrous works. This has the sense of talking amongst yourselves. Remind each other of the gospel and say what wonderful things the Lord has done in your life. And others will praise God for what he has done in his covenant love towards you. Verse 3, glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. You know, when when we glory in the name of the Lord who has done such great things we do not deserve, you are to rejoice, aren't you? That though I deserve hell, I have received heaven. And I know I possess it because of this covenant. Then in verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Seek him daily. Seek his strength. We are so deceived, aren't we, friends? We think we're going to make it to heaven on our own strength. But he says, seek his strength and seek his face, right? Seek his blessing. Ask for his countenance to shine upon you. When you receive the benediction at the end of the service, you seek it, friends, and you glory in it. And you say, Lord, have your face shine upon me. For without him, his strength and his blessing, you will never make it to glory. In verse 5, remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. How often you are called to meditate on and store up his wonderful works. If I said, tell me of his wonderful works, would you be able to right now? What has he done, beloved? You're told to remember, know them out of the Bible, but also review your own history. Spurgeon said something convicting. Alas, we are far more ready to recollect foolish and evil things than to retain in our minds the glorious deeds of Jehovah. What is stored in your mind? What is always in your memory? What are you thinking on? Is it the things of this world, your idols, or the mighty works of God for sinners like you? Meditate on the word and works of Christ. Store his word in your heart. Then at the end, in verse 45, you find the end of salvation that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws 
Praise ye the Lord, or hallelujah. Hallelujah. Observe his commandments out of gratitude for the covenant of grace. You see, the covenant of grace includes commandments. It's not Sinai was law, and in Christ we have just no law at all. It's just all of grace. No, the Ten Commandments begin with God's covenant salvation. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That is the law of the covenant. In the same way, when Jesus comes in the New Testament, it reiterates that in Luke 1, 72-75, to perform the mercy, this is, listen to this carefully, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. How many texts from Deuteronomy and throughout are coming to you, friend? in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That's why Christ comes. And fittingly, the psalm also ends with a call to praise. Praise ye the Lord. Ye is plural. Corporate worship. He made a covenant for the church as a people, and the church as a people are to worship him together. That is why I trust you are here. You've received covenant mercies. You cannot stay by yourself someplace. You come together, we are saved as a people for heaven. We are not just saved, it's not just me in heaven and Jesus. It's us together and Jesus. And that's the great thing. I will be their God and they will be my person or people. My people. We are the people of God. Take your place in God's assembly and worship him together. For ultimately, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. To which we say amen and amen. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let us rise for prayer. O gracious God of heaven, we say we cannot even exhaust this psalm, we can't even scratch the surface of it, and we have spent so much time this morning for which we praise you, Father, for the mercies of the Lord are inexhaustible and too wonderful to be contained in any single sermon, in any single thought. Oh God, help us to remember your wonderful works and meditate on them often. Help us to understand that the promises of God will never be vanquished, that we will possess our inheritance, and you will do it all for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. If any here do not know the Savior, we pray that you would give them faith that they would take hold of the covenant of grace in Christ and that they would understand that they are surely headed to heaven because theirs is not a vain hope, but a sure hope because you have sworn to do it. We praise you and bless you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.